Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Claire Press. Claire is Australian Vogue's sustainability editor at large as well as the presenter of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, which unzips fashion's biggest ethical issues. Claire has authored two books, and her third, titled Rise and Resist, is due to be released this October. In addition, Claire has written for magazines such as In Style, Rolling Stone, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, and the Sydney Morning Herald, and has interviewed everyone from social entrepreneurs to Beyonce and Pharrell. Claire, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. I'm really a fan of the work that you're doing, Rachel. I've listened to lots of your shows and I think they're really, really intriguing and original. Oh, thank you, Claire. That's great to hear. Now, your your year has been a very exciting year. You were appointed as Vogue's Sustainable Fashion Editor at large in March of this year to, to a lot of fanfare from the industry. It's an incredible step <laughs> in the right direction for Vogue to be implementing a role like yours. So could you tell us about your first few months in the job and why you think this role is so important? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's been lovely for me. I mean, it's important for me, for sure. I I started my career at Vogue. I was the features director there for about five years in the mid-2000s and then have spent many years in other magazines. I was most recently at Marie Claire. So to be able to come back to a brand that I love and that has a lot of power in the industry and to come back with this remit where I can talk about the work that I really care about, which is around the environment and around supply chains and people when it comes to the fashion industry. That was an amazing opportunity. I mean, in terms of why it's important for the industry, I would say that the fashion industry has been clearly moving in this direction for a while now. And it makes sense for a brand like Vogue to lead on this in terms of magazines. But if you look at the fashion houses and brands, sustainability is a non-negotiable. They've all got sustainability departments, managers, people who deal with supply chains in-house. So I think that really this is a sign of the times, to be honest. And I hope that other publications follow suit. I mean, I'm actually the first sustainability editor at a big magazine brand in the world. So that shows that we've got work to do there. But I mean, I think it's exciting times. And and I would just say that Vogue is is the best. It's always been the leader. So I'm not surprised that they took charge on this. And, And my job is really about, officially, it's about maintaining an environmental focus for the magazine moving forwards. And as you mentioned, it was announced in March, and that coincided with our sustainability issue that was guest edited by Emma Watson. And if listeners aren't aware of what Emma Watson does beyond being an an amazing actress, she's actually authentically and really genuinely involved in sustainability and she really cares about it. And, you know, sometimes when when people guest edit magazines, it's kind of a figurehead token thing. But in Emma's case, it was really real. And she was across every single page and wanted to really understand that all of the product that we showed was ethically produced. And if you saw, um, she had this thing called the press tour where she only wears and promotes sustainable designers when she's on the road promoting her movies. So she's using her power for good. 
Yeah. Oh, Emma is such an inspiration and it was a fantastic issue. One of one of my favourites in, in recent years. It was really, really good and it was clear what a, a hands-on role Emma had. Well, thank you. Actually, I would just mention as well um, something I wanted to share with you that we worked with an Australian startup called Good On You on that issue to make sure that every brand that we showcased had got good sustainability credentials. And if people aren't aware of that, it's an app. It's an ethical shopping app. It started in Australia, but now it's operating in the US and in Europe. And they've just completed this amazing thing called the Accelerator Program with an organization called Fashion for Good that's based in Amsterdam. And it was started by, uh, it was funded by the CNA Foundation. And its aim is to kind of support this whole network of fashion change makers around the world. So that's just another example of how how I think the world is really moving towards being more sustainable when it comes to our fashion choices. It is. It's so exciting. and, and Well, I'm... I just wanted to shout out to them because they're Australian and I love that they're doing so well internationally. Yeah. Now, the other place that I, in addition to Vogue, that I'm learning so much about ethical fashion is your incredible podcast, Wardrobe Crisis. I, I love it. I listen to it every week. Um, Hurrah! <laughs> it is so, so good. And I would highly recommend it to our listeners. You interviewed Kalpona Akta. Um, a couple of months ago, I think it was, and Kalpona is a leading Bangladeshi labour activist. You mentioned the significance of the collapse of Rana Plaza in 2013 in that episode and how that was a bit of a watershed moment for you. So can you talk about the impact that that, that had on you and your career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, and I'm sure for many of my colleagues and people working inside the industry, Rana Plaza was this terrible watershed moment that made us really sit up and take notice of the issues around fashion supply chains. Um, for listeners who aren't aware of, of what happened then, and I think many of us would be aware, I mean, it was just reported everywhere, but on April the 24th, 2013, the Rana Plaza factory complex in Savar, just outside of Dhaka in Bangladesh, collapsed. It killed 1,138 people. I mean, the numbers are unbelievable. It orphaned 800 children. I always remember that one. I mean, how can that be possible? Uh, and injured many, many more. The magnitude of the disaster was some, it, it resulted in this kind of media frenzy. It was impossible to look away. How can you look at those numbers without being shocked to your core and wanting to do something about it? And I would say that it wasn't the first terrible factory disaster that's happened in Bangladesh or elsewhere in the garment industry. And in fact, there have been several fires and other industrial accidents that had happened in the run-up to that. But it was just the scale of it. It made people really shocked. And, and I was one of those people. And after that happened, I, I met with a, a journalist from the UK called Lucy Siegel, who is the author of a really great book about the fashion industry called To Die For, Is Fashion Wearing, Wearing Out the World? And I said to her, what can I do? I feel really culpable. And she suggested that I get involved with Fashion Revolution. And so I, I sit on the Australian advisory board of that. Fashion Revolution is a campaign that was begun in the aftermath of Rana Plaza to raise awareness about supply chains in the industry. And it's a charity. It's operable in, I think it's like 100 countries now. And so I do some work with them just around raising awareness. Um, you mentioned Kalpona Akta. She's an incredible woman, a visionary political leader whose works, um, as you mentioned, in, in the union movement in Bangladesh with a focus on garment industry. I interviewed her uh, via Human Rights Watch, actually, when she came to Sydney a little 
little while later. And that's one of my favorite podcasts that I've done because it's just, I mean, again, you can't look away. And she describes the aftermath of Rana Plaza. She wasn't there when it actually happened, but she rushed back there from the States about three days afterwards. And she describes what it was like to see the misery and, and the terrible pain and, and hear people crying. And, you know, this stuff is terrible and visceral, but I think it's impossible to to listen to those stories and then look away from the issues that are, I'm afraid, entrenched in the fashion industry in terms of how we treat workers in the supply chain. We, and actually, that word, I'm just going to say that, that word, that phrase supply chain is so clinical, isn't it? It sort yeah. of doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, yeah. of course it does, but it, to the layperson, you hear it and you think, all oh, right, well, marketing speak or, I don't know, systems talk. But actually, supply chain means the people. This is people making our clothes. And this is real people and real people's experience in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really, it's really important for us to remember that this is a human issue. Yeah, this is people and families. And as you said, it is so easy to disconnect from from who made our clothes because we don't we don't see it. There's no point in in the process of us purchasing clothes where we are made aware of that. Uh, well, is, you're sort of right. Sorry to interrupt yeah, you, yeah, but yeah. I'm not sure you're always right. So you're right when it comes to, for example, the opacity of supply chains around some of the giant brands that produce in places like Dhaka. Mm-hmm. But then I also think we're seeing a movement towards much greater transparency at all levels of the industry. And, and people are actually sick of not knowing who made their clothes and they're asking more questions. And there's, and I just, I guess I just want to ra- sort of yank that back to the mm-hmm. positive because there are a lot of positive stories about brands brands doing good stuff, particularly some of the smaller brands who are really sharing meaningful information around who makes their clothes and why it matters and why it's done beautifully. Yeah, yes, yes, you're so right. And that's such an exciting shift that is happening in the industry. So to, to build upon this point a bit more, the manufacturing industry is largely staffed by, by women, in my understanding, women in developing yes. countries. And it's evident what an impact uh, having a living wage can have on these women as opposed to having minimum wage. And there's such an important distinction between the two, between minimum wage and a living wage. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it's such a thorny issue. But you're absolutely right, Rachel, to say that it's disproportionately women who make our clothes. So there are about 60 million, maybe as many as 70 million garment workers worldwide. Most of them are women. Uh, most are aged between 18 and 24 and most have children. Now, the first thing to say is that very few big brands that produce in so-called, I hate that phrase, developing countries, pay a living wage to offshore garment workers. And, you know, just as I mentioned before with Rana Plaza, the practice of chasing the cheapest needle is rife. So it's kind of like as soon as wages rise in somewhere, for example, like China, then brands at the lower end of the market will look for cheaper alternatives in places like Bangladesh or increasingly in Africa. The argument that we always hear from the fashion industry is that, well, first of all, we don't own the factories. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the, the kind of broken record response. Yes, we are responsible to an extent for the workers in our supply chain, but it's not really our fault because we don't own the factories. I mean, that I would say is absolute rubbish. You have a responsibility to the workers in your outsourced factories. Now, the other thing that we hear is that it's difficult to pin down what a living wage should mean. And of course, it's different in different countries, but it's not true to say that there is no methodology for 
calculating a living wage. And I wrote this down, so I'm just going to read it out for you. Um, According to Oxfam, a living wage should be earned in a standard work week of no more than 48 hours. It should provide for a worker and their family a decent standard of living. And this includes food, housing, healthcare, clothing, transportation, utilities, childcare, and education, with some money left over for emergencies. Now, Rachel, if you think about what I just read out there, that's those are basic human rights, you know, the mm-hmm. right to be able to yep. have a decent standard of living that where you have enough money to put food on the table, where you have housing, where you have enough money put by that if you have a medical emergency, you're going to be able to pay for the doctors. Now, in many of these places that we're talking about, for example, in Bangladesh, these basic human rights that we would assume that we all deserve are just not being serviced by the jobs that people are doing. And you mentioned that the wardrobe crisis episode with Kalpona actor, she talks in that in that episode about the experience of the average garment worker in Dhaka. And she tells, I, I really urge people to listen to it because it's best to hear it from her, from her mouth. But she talks about the hardship and the ridiculously long hours and the, you know, the foreman leaning over her, making sure that she can't even take time to go to the toilet. And she should ask for breaks to have a glass of water. And then the relentless pressure of targets. And if those targets are not met, then the pressure to then re to work overtime in order to meet those targets and often unpaid overtime. It's I mean, terrific. Well, it's, it's, it's not right, is it? I mean, when you think as well that um, we're talking about essentially luxury items for us we don't need a new t-shirt do we that's not a that's not a basic human right to have a lovely new frock so these are luxury items and too often these are made in conditions that are very far from luxurious i mean that word seems absolutely ridiculous when you're looking at this conversation right yeah this is another thing i wrote down that again comes from oxfam they say that the poorest 70 percent of people in asia have seen their incomes fall in recent years so even though we talk about economic advancement and we know that the fashion industry can be a tool for that people are actually seeing falling wages and and just to to finish up on that you asked me about how what a living wage is there are methodologies, they're a little bit complicated, but there are a couple of them that people might want to look into. So one's called the Asian Floor Wage Alliance and the other is called the Anchor Methodology. And they basically just look at what money buys in different countries. But I mean, look, it's a complex issue. It can't be solved very in one fell swoop. The industry needs to come together to figure out how they're going to pay a living wage. There are commitments that have been made by lots of brands, but unfortunately what we're seeing mostly is commitments rather than actual action. When you talk about the experience that that Carpona had and and the experiences of her colleagues, it, it's it's almost sickening to think that we're in some way responsible for culpable. that. Culpable, culpable. Yeah, I I think back to the the many many times that I've purchased sort of fast fashion items, um, and it's it's it makes you really uncomfortable. But you know we need to be made uncomfortable. I think because I think that's discomfort's always a precursor to change. You... That's very clever. You're right, actually, mm-hmm. Rachel. And that happened to me. That's what I did. I listened to these stories, particularly around Rana Plaza, and thought, hang on, am I part of this problem as a fashion fan, but as a shopper, but also as a journalist? And what can I do to try and change it? And I think we do need to sit with the discomfort, if you like, but we do need to be open to listening to these stories that don't make us feel so good. The same applies to the work that I do in the environmental space you know it's tempting as I said to look away but it's not possible once you know what I know exactly (laughs) but the uh, yeah yeah. I mean the, the other thing I would say is that um 
I don't think guilt is a very useful motivator. I think it's important to look at an issue straight on and to accept the things that make us feel uncomfortable. But if we want to make change, guilt's not a really great way to do that. I think if you start making people feel guilty about fashion, you don't get very far because fashion's meant to be enjoyable. Yes. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that applies to development very broadly is we, it's not useful to talk in guilt inducing negative terms, but rather to talk in empowering terms Absolutely. and to talk about the ways we can empower ourselves and empower others, um, which, which you do so well. You, you mentioned Oxfam earlier. I know that you've worked with Oxfam a little bit on some of their ethical fashion campaigns. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so in October 2017, Oxfam Australia, so it was produced in by the Australian Arm, released a campaign called What She Makes. It's ongoing, and it looked at the stories of garment workers in Bangladesh and, as the title suggests, unzipped the issues around exactly what they were making. And uh, there's a story about a particular garment worker who is making 39 cents an hour to make clothes that appear in our Australian high street stores. And again, it comes down to what's her experience? What's she able to buy with that? Does that give her security? And the answer was no. So Oxfam has been doing some good work in terms of pressurizing brands to be more transparent about how they're treating workers in their supply chain and also to be more ready to act on those commitments to pay a living wage. And you can actually hop on their website and see the progress that's been made and also see how different brands are ranked according to um, to Oxfam's methodology just along this particular campaign. And I did produce a podcast about this as well. I think it's episode 23 or 4 from last season, but it's still very relevant today if people are interested in, in digging a bit deeper into that. Yeah, yes, and we'll include the, the links to... Oxfam's campaign in our show notes today. Well, thank you. You have recently returned from Nairobi, which I've really enjoyed following on your social media channels, um, on a trip that you did with the Ethical Fashion Initiative. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with the Ethical Fashion Initiative, it's a UN project that essentially connects local artisans to global fashion brands. That's my understanding of it anyway. Could you Tell us a little bit about your work with AFI and your time in Nairobi. Oh, it was wonderful. I mean, this is a really good news story. And we need those. Like I said, fashion is about feeling inspired and excited and beauty and oh, being transported. And that's exactly what this was about. Um, as you rightly described it, the Ethical Fashion Initiative hooks up micro producers in places like Kenya, where I was in Nairobi, but also in Burkina Faso, in Mali, in Haiti. And actually, they're starting to do some work in Afghanistan. But they hook up these brilliant micro producers, and that term means perhaps independent producers. And I'll talk to you a little bit about who I met when I was in Nairobi. But hooking up these skilled people with big fashion, primarily in places like London um, and Milan, but also in Melbourne. And so, I don't know if listeners are aware of an Australian accessories brand called Mimco, but they have been working with the EFI for, I think it's since 2014. So it's about 12 collections that they have produced with the Ethical Fashion Initiative. And it's just a glorious story. It's lovely. The EFI was set up under the umbrella of the United Nations. It was established by this guy called Simone Cipriani, 
And he has been a great influence in terms of my work. I interviewed him ages ago for Vogue, and he's just such a compelling and charismatic individual. <laughs> when you listen to him talk about the work that he's doing to make change, you just you just want to join in. Um, and so I had this opportunity after all these years, like it's about four years since I first interviewed Simone, to actually go and see the work that they're doing. So I went with MIMCO and the EFI, and we we met with all these incredible beaders in the slums of Corrigocho in Nairobi. Um, I actually got to sit down with the women and bead with them. And that was wow. amazing. Yeah, it was so great. I mean, I really... It was amazing because I was concerned initially about being this kind of white, uh, I hate to use the word, but I just didn't want to be perceived as like a colonial weirdo who was walking in there going, what are you all doing here? I'm from Vogue. <laughs> you know, that 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 whole yeah. awful distance, but also that power dynamic. I just wanted it not to be like that. It wasn't like that. I got to have this amazing experience where I sat down with the ladies for a few hours and they taught me to bead and I sucked at it, which was excellent because then the power dynamic shifts because it's like, they're the boss. I'm not the boss. I'm useless. I can't even do it. <laughs> and then we ended up having these awesome conversations that were really real about their experiences. And just to put that in perspective, in context of what we were just talking about with Kalpona Actor, this was a very different story. This was about women saying, we, we, first of all, I should say they work in a collective, so they're their own bosses, really. Um, they were talking about how the work allows them to be empowered, to educate their kids, to have a stable income. And it was just a really inspiring example of how, when it's steered in the right way, the fashion industry can actually be that empowering instrument for change that does lift women up and allow them to lift themselves up. Yeah. Wow. But and goodness, I was such a bad beater. Oh, my <laughs> God. It's really hard. <laughs> like I you're not, not pursuing it. a career in beating. I would seriously be fired. <laughs> and you mentioned independent producers. So would those women have been classed as independent producers? The word micro-producer is a word that Simone likes. But okay. what it really means is that it could be, for example, one guy on the side of a road using his sort of very rudimentary furnace to melt down scrap metal in order to make jewellery. Okay. It could be a collective of a few women who've got together to use their skills to bead accessories for sale in their local markets. Um, so it is a bit of a loose term, but what it really means is just basically smaller producers who might have these amazing skills and they're self-starters, but they don't obviously have the marketing nous or connections to sell those skills to bigger companies. And that's where the UN has stepped in. Yeah. as a kind of matchmaker, if you like, through the Ethical Trading Initiative. Um, and, and now the, the EFI has actually spun off into a private company in Nairobi, which is called Artisan Fashion, and that's run as a bit of a social enterprise, but it's still audited by the United Nations. Great. Well, and so the UN sort of acting as an intermediary of sorts. I mean, they step in through the ages of the Ethical Trading Initiative to provide structure and opportunities for work. And, and I know that you and I have talked about this before, Rachel, but the, the tagline for the, for the Ethical Fashion Initiative is not charity, work. So it's about creating these opportunities that um, are not about having handouts, but are about giving opportunity to people so they can build their own success. And I think that's a really important point for us to make here is that this is work, not charity. And distinguishing between the two, I think, is what really sets the EFI apart. So in your view, how important is it that we don't view 
working with women like those that you met in Nairobi as a charitable endeavour, but that we view it as a business partnership? Well, in this case, it just isn't a charitable endeavour. It really is, as you've mentioned, a business partnership. So I think, I mean, the key here is that fashion is an industry. It's about making opportunity to provide fair work for people. And that's the sort of area that I operate in. I think charity is, of course, a very noble and important area. It's not the area I work in. So it's a different kind of skills, a different medium. And it's not something that I'm particularly across, to be honest. But I do think that the industry of fashion does have great power to provide fair work and decent work for people. And that we need to do more work towards creating those kinds of environments that facilitate that. Certainly. And that, and that's especially apparent when we consider the, the percentage of the global poor who are employed or in some way affiliated with the manufacturing sector. It is a really direct way to help them when we address manufacturing. Okay, this is an age-old story. Manufacturing has always been about some of the people at the poorer end of the spectrum being given opportunity and potentially being exploited and potentially making their way that story is age old. If you look at the history of the garment industry from Victorian times, I mean, I, I write about this in my book, Wardrobe Crisis, that there are stories around, for example, factory disasters that happened in New York that really kind of mirror the story of Rana Plaza. For example, there's a thing called the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory Disaster that happened in New York in the 19, I think it was 1911, where again, workers were trapped in this terrible building in the Triangle example, they were actually locked in. They were primarily very young women, some of them as young as 14, primarily immigrant women who'd been exploited and paid terrible wages. Um, now, these stories seem to come up again and again and again, but at the same time, we also have a mirror, a mirroring of the stories of positive change. And I do think we need to remember that the industry can be a force for positive change. And that if you look, for example, at the fair trade model, there are beautiful examples of how the opportunity of work in the fashion industry can provide for building communities and ways for women in particular to get ahead and to build their wealth and to build their communities. So there's sort of two sides to it. Um, and I think we can absolutely learn from history, can't we? Mm. But but yeah, I, I do think it's important to remember that big bad fashion is not the only way of looking at this. It can also be a conduit for change. And because it is a big, powerful industry, the opportunities are there. And if we can just do a little bit more work to steer those opportunities in a positive way towards some of these women who are getting a raw deal, then I think then that's something to be celebrated. I love that. And that's exactly what this podcast is about, is reconceptualizing business and, and typically private sector industries and understanding how they can be conduits for change, as you say. And I, I think fashion is one of the most exciting examples of that. Rachel, think about um, the rise in social business. And I know you know a lot about this, but if you look at, for example, the B Corp model or social enterprise in general, there are more and more businesses that are operating in this way, business for good, business for purpose. And I think that we're seeing not just more businesses set up in this way, but also much more interest from consumers in this way. And there are lots of studies that show that millennials, for example, and if you want to look further into the future, I think we'll see even more of it when it comes to Gen Z. Gen Z, that makes me feel old. But, you know, customers want to shop their values and they're looking increasingly for brands to espouse authentic values and to actually be doing something decent, not just making something beautiful. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very exciting step in the right direction. That brings me to the next question I wanted to ask you. What I find a lot, especially since I started working in international development, is that most people really want to help, but they struggle to find meaningful ways to be a part of the change. But the reality is it's the decisions and behaviours that we have every single day that actually contributes to creating the sort of world that, that we want to see. And our and our purchasing decisions with regard to fashion is a really fantastic example of that. Every dollar we spend on a brand is a is is a vote for the sort of world that we want to create. Um, so what, what would you say to people who want to become more ethical fashion consumers? Well, you're so right, Rachel. It's true. I understand very much that feeling of powerlessness when you're faced with really big issues and you think, well, I'm just one person. How can I change the world? And I mean, I, I think about that, particularly in the environmental space, when you look at the magnitude of the problems we face with something like global warming, it can be it's tempting to think, well, it's too big, it's too hard, so I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go and watch The Bachelor or whatever it is you do to get away from, you know, having to deal with the big stuff. But what you said is the kernel of the crux of this stuff. Vote with your wallet is a real thing. It's a cliche because it's real. Everything you buy, every decision you make in your day-to-day life impacts someone somewhere you can choose to support the good things. And by making those small choices, you can actually affect change. You know, one person on her own is a tiny little thing, but one person is part of many. You're part of a community. You and me together make change. You and me and all of these listeners make change together. So I think don't underestimate the power of voting with your wallet look for brands that are doing the right thing and support them whether it be buying their products whether it be spreading their message um it's not just conscious consumerism it's also about supporting ngos and campaigns that you believe in and using your voice for good and i think we've all got that capacity and the more you do it the more empowered you feel yes Yes, I totally agree. And I think the biggest hurdle to doing this is this concept of affluenza, which you talk about a bit on the show, whereby so many of us (laughs) feel that we have to buy everything and we have to have it now and that that is the ultimate status symbol and also that we have to get it at the lowest price. Um, So how can the fashion industry encourage more responsible buying habits without inadvertently destroying its own industry and consumer base? Well, I do think that we can. And and I come at this from um, a standpoint of believing in conscious consumerism. I'm not saying, or it's not my personal view that we need to stop shopping and that shopping is big and bad. I'm actually a shopping fan. I'm a fashion fan. I love clothes and I'm quite happy to shop from brands that I believe are doing something good or trying to produce their clothes in the most responsible ways possible and being transparent about how far they're getting with that and what their journey looks like. So I'm not that person who's saying don't buy stuff. They're out there, (laughs) but I'm not one of them. Um, I absolutely believe that we can together create a responsible business environment where businesses do good and where we can all be have this feeling of being in this together to create value that really understands what the true cost of something is and also where its true value lies. Um, when you talk about affluenza, I mean, that 
again, just to plug my podcast, but you brought it up. I interviewed this amazing guy. He's an economist called Richard Dennis, an Australian economist who wrote a book called Curing Affluenza. It's a sequel to a book that he wrote with Clive Hamilton about 10 years ago called Simply Affluenza. And it's about this idea that we're all trying to buy things we don't want with money we don't have to impress people we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Oh, no, it sounds awful. Um, I would urge you to listen to Richard. We have a bit of argy-bargy on there. We don't necessarily think the same things, but he's a fascinating guy. And um, a lot of the points he makes are very, very relevant. Um, And what he says is, if you're happy buying a load of stuff, if you're really, really happy, fine. But he would question whether he's ever met anyone for whom buying stuff makes them truly happy. And I mean, I understand that to an extent. I think if you're filling an emotional void, a big gaping hole that you're miserable in by trying to pour a load of consumer goods into it, you're probably going to stop short, aren't you, and end up miserable. But I don't think shopping is a bad thing. I think that shopping with purpose, mindful shopping, is perfectly acceptable stuff. I mean, we need an economy. And let's remember that those 60 million garment workers that I mentioned first in, earlier on in this interview will be out of a job if they weren't working in the garment industry. So I think it's about creating a fairer fashion industry and about supporting the good stuff. But, you know, I, I also think you mentioned uh, the pressure to buy things immediately, but also at the lowest possible cost. I think that's where I come into this. Where is the true cost of that garment that you're buying? If you're buying something for the cost of a sandwich or a beer, are you really paying the true cost for that? Because mm-hmm. somebody always pays the price the price for too cheap. So if you, I would just say question question the price. And I'm not suggesting that everybody runs out and buys Gucci. I'm not saying as a kind of fashion idiot that you can't exist unless you spend a thousand dollars on a frock. But what I'm saying is if that dress or t-shirt or shoe that you're considering buying in your lunch break costs the same as your lunch, I think maybe you've got a problem there. And I think we need to be paying the real cost of things. So considering is the garment worker being paid a fair wage? Has there been an undue cost on the environment to the production of some of these things? And just being a little bit more savvy and a little bit more interested in digging into the why and the how around how things are made. Yeah. And and after I learned from you and your podcast about Mimco, Mimco was already one of my favorite brands. And after I learned about it, I, w- I went straight to Mimco and I bought more things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which They'd probably be great. happy about that. Yeah. But you know, I mean, I think... Um, I actually bought a Mimco EFI basket. Uh, I really wanted it. And I was like, I'm going to buy that. Why not? It's beautiful to me. It's a talking point. When people go, that's a lovely basket. I can say to them, actually, it was made by these amazing weavers that I met. And this beading was done by these Maasai women who were taught in this way. And they did it in this place. And, you know, if I, if I had it to hand, which I don't, you can actually look on the Mimco website at the Ethical Fashion Initiative product, and I should say it's not all their product, but the EFI stuff, and you can see a direct report that's been produced in by the UN that shows exactly what the impacts were on the women of making these garments or making these accessories. And it comes down to things like X amount of people saved their earnings, X amount of people saved this percentage and put it towards healthcare and education and housing. So actually sometimes when you make a purchase, you are doing good. Yeah, exactly. And we'll include um, that info from the Mimco website in our show notes today too, because I have read it as well. And it is, it is really, really interesting. 
it's pretty cool. And, and I'd like to see more brands do that in different ways. You know, obviously not everybody can produce with the Ethical Fashion Initiative, but there are other ways of being transparent about the impacts of the pro- the products that are made and, and that we buy. And I think that we are moving towards greater transparency with that stuff. And I'd like to see more of it. I love the stories behind how things are made. Yeah, yeah, so do I. It, it makes it all feel so much more personal. And, and I love those items in my wardrobe where I know the backstory. I think that's really special. I think the other part of this is the circular economy in fashion, which we are starting to understand a little bit more. And you, something that I absolutely love about what you do is you are a Vogue editor and you wear clothes from op shops from time to time. And you put that on Oh my God, I'm wearing some now. Are you? (laughs) I'm wearing this really weird jumper. (laughs) I'm wearing this like loopy green hand knit jumper that I bought from the Salvo store. It's fabulous. I love it. It's so great. And admittedly, this is what an impact your podcast has had on me. Before I listened to it, I had never set foot in an op shop. Um, it wow. It just wasn't, wasn't something I thought to do, despite considering myself someone that, that cares about development very much and has worked in this industry for, for several years now. And since listening to the podcast, I've gone to an op shop weekly. I haven't I haven't bought many new things I don't look. in the past month. Yeah, and I and I've and I've been and I've been doing this and it's great and it feels so empowering. Um but Rachel, were you blown away by how much stuff is in there and also how good oh, it is? Do you know the first thing I picked up was a, a Kurt Geiger handbag. Well, you see? Yeah. And I looked up the retail price and it's still on sale for 490 Australian dollars. It's bizarre what people get rid of. I mean, yeah. I've seen I've seen Le Boutin, if you want, I, before I said the word shoe in the singular, and I think that some of your listeners would be like, what is she talking about? That is a fashion thing that for some reason, a pant and a shoe is always singular. We never have a pair. <laughs> anyway. not buying I, a single shoe. I don't know why that is, but it's just a thing. So I found a Christian Le Boutin shoe in, well, there were two of them, in the Salvos. I mean, those things cost $900 and there they were, like barely worn, a little bit bit scuffed on on the soles. But I mean, people throw away extraordinary things. And I mean, I have no idea about the individual reason why that woman had bought those shoes and got rid of them. Maybe they hurt her toes. But there is an enormous wealth of, of product out there in, in the secondhand world, be it in op shops, which obviously help charities. So I like that. But also just on eBay or Gumtree or one of the many new burgeoning e, re, re is the phrase, re-commerce sites like Vestier, which is a French one, or the real real in the States. I mean, it just shows how much volume there is of product out there. There was a stat I read recently which suggested that within the next decade, re-commerce is going to outperform fast fashion in terms of sales globally. Wow. What a thought. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's an amazing world to picture. I We don't have much time left. There's two questions I want to ask you before we finish up. Firstly, I'm so excited about your new book coming out this October, Rise and Resist. God love you. Thank oh, you for the plug. It's going to be great. <laughs> I, your previous book, Wardrobe Crisis, is one of my favorites. I've read it a few times. So can you tell us about Rise and Resist and, and how this book differs from your last book and what we should expect? Absolutely. Um the subtitle is How to Change the World. So it's kind of a big topic. Um, yes. There is a lot less fashion in this book. However, there is still a bit. Um, it's a book about movement building and it has a focus on women. 
So this is the story of how we change our world, looking at the, I guess, cross movements and the intersections between the new social movements around climate justice, social justice, feminism, and change making in general. Um, Wardrobe Crisis is narrative nonfiction. And in that book, which is about the fashion system, I tell stories from some famous people some people you've never heard of, and they share their insights into how they are shaping the fashion world. In Rise and Resist, I take the same tack, and I'm talking to change makers. So there are beautiful stories in there about, for example, uh, I interviewed, uh, actually, this is a guy, most of it's women. It's not completely outlawing men. That's not my aim. But I did <laughs> want to focus on women because I think that women's stories are undertold. But here's an example who's actually from a guy. So I interviewed a man called Andrew Barker, who runs something called Grow Free. And the idea is that people should grow food and give it away. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Such a simple idea, but such a beautiful one. Um, I interviewed the founders of Fashion Revolution about about how they made change after the Rana Plaza disaster that we just mentioned and how they built this global movement for change among consumers and involved millions of people in this movement. I tell the stories of the women's marches and the stories of March for Our Lives, the incredibly affecting stories that came out of the need to control guns in the States after the Parkland shooting. Um, what else? I mean, so it's basically a kind of big ride through the current movement building context wow. and also there's a lot of focus on global warming um a lot of stuff that i've been writing around stop adani and around lock the gate which is a movement that's been set up in australia to try to get farmers and landowners together to fight what they would see as unfair and i would concur um extreme extraction of things like calcium gas and coal mining on their land so it's big stuff yeah but I think and I hope that it's written in a very accessible way and it really is about people sharing their stories and so it feels accessible and it feels possible. And and I think my aim in writing the book was to encourage everybody to get involved. How can you make a change in your community? What can you take as learnings from these stories and apply to your own lives and the issues that you care about? Oh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. And I feel like it's going to be a very emotional read too. But it's also funny. <laughs> I believe in jokes. Yeah. I believe strongly in jokes because like I said about positivity and about guilt, none of that works. You've got if you're gonna tell a big harrowing story, you've got to have a joke at the end. And what we want is a feeling of positivity and possibility where people think, hang on, I can do this. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get up right now off the sofa and do this rather than, oh, this is hard. Yeah. I can't deal. <laughs> Empowering. That's oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait. Okay, I've got a difficult question for you now. This is the question I ask a lot of our guests at the end of our interviews. What does success look like for you in 10 years? Oh, whoa, that's a big question. Mm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not really great at really long-term planning because I'm a Gemini and I like to do different things all the time. Um, I can talk about the short term. What I'm really, what success looks like for me in October when my book comes out, shameless plug, you can pre-order it through the Melbourne University Press website. We'll include but, a link in the show notes. <laughs> thank you. But what success looks like for me in the short term is getting out there and talking about this book, doing a lot of talking and a lot of kind of talk circuit traveling to go and meet as many people as I possibly can to share what I've learned through the writing of it. Um in the sort of medium term, and if you want to talk about macro aims, 
I'm still very invested in trying to change the fashion industry for good. And all of the work really that I do points towards that. So I do that through my writing and my talking and my podcasting and increasingly working with brands as well to try to help them steer their businesses towards more sustainable practices. So that's kind of my long-term goal. But if you asked me what I was going to be doing in 10 years time, I'd have to say I have no clue. Yeah. Dressed up dressed up from the op shop and probably on holiday. <laughs> I'd love to go on holiday. I'm traveling all the time but it's always work yeah oh yeah that's an exciting thought Claire you (laughs) are such an inspiration to myself and so many others and you are catalyzing such powerful change in the industry and I'm so grateful for the work that you do so thank you for sharing so much with us today Oh, you're so generous. Thank you. And it's really delightful to be able to talk to you. And one thing I want to say before I let you go is that podcasts are so amazing, aren't they? Like to me, listening to other people's podcasts and finding out about new ones is part of the joy of making my own. So it's been so, as I said, really lovely to listen to the work that you're doing. And I always find that it leads to other podcasts and other people and issues that I wasn't aware of. And I love it. It's like a rabbit hole that you don't want to get out of. It's a great network builder. I completely agree. It's a great platform. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Claire. 